Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. Those chairs are as heavy as they look. <laughs> and about as comfortable. But I got the scales of justice one, which I think is quite appropriate. You know, the, the chairs, the chairs are a good, uh, no cup holders, book holders. <laughs> There's a market for Jewish cars with, <laughs> equipped with cup, with book holders instead of cup holders. The, the chairs, I think, are actually a, a good set induction to what, how I was going to begin. Uh, you may notice the images on these chairs. Uh, you may not now notice what's behind me and Jessica, but on this chair we have uh, King David playing a harp. Uh, that is one of the ways that King David is remembered biblically. He's also remembered as a fierce warrior uh, and a, an aggressive uh, imperialist king of uh, Israel, who uh, was successful in, you know, let's see if I can get this so that it also gives us, how's that, is that getting in? Okay. Uh, he's, uh, he was successful not only in uniting the tribes of Israel, but also in expanding Israel's territory. Behind me is Bar Kokhba, who was a resistance leader of the Jewish people against Rome uh, after the revolt against Rome, uh, the, the, the failed great revolt against Rome uh, that ended in 70 CE. There was a subsequent uh, rebellion against Rome in the second century uh, led by Bar Kokhba that, was, uh, that had some modest success but ultimately was, was crushed by the, by the empire. And then uh, on the end there, I'll get the end first, the end is a Maccabee, uh, which is the only non-biblical figure. Actually, sorry, Barcoff was not a biblical figure either. But uh, the but Maccabees, of course, uh, were uh, warriors that led a rebellion against uh, the uh, Assyrian Greeks, against the um, uh, Seleucid Empire. And then uh, behind Jessica is King Solomon, who is among these four chairs, really the only uh, figure that is most closely associated with peace. He is uh, a king that reigned for 40 years, according to the Bible, uh, and his reign encompassed mostly peace and prosperity. And that is reflected perhaps in his name, Shlomo, which is a derivation of the Hebrew word for peace, Shalom. And I think that that's a good set induction because it reflects one of the core tensions, I think, in the Jewish tradition uh, between a revulsion about war and violence and bloodshed and also a recognition that war is part of the human experience and is sometimes necessary. So there is, I think, a caricature of Judaism that is reflected maybe in the prayer that I offered at the end of the service just a few moments ago. May the one who establishes peace on high make peace for us, for all Israel, and for all who dwell on earth. And indeed, 
the concluding portion of every Jewish prayer service always ends in a prayer for peace. The messianic vision of uh, Jewish tradition is a uh, world of, of peace. And yet, there is also a caricature of Judaism, primarily that exists within uh, the Christian world, of Judaism representing a, an Old Testament religion with an Old Testament God that is extremely violent and uh, capricious and malevolent and bent on war and destruction. And indeed, it's possible to find that evidence for that within Jewish sources. The Bible, which Christians sometimes call the Old Testament, is replete with instances of war, many of them sanctioned by the divine, and many of them uh, extremely bloody and brutal, especially by modern standards. So what do we do with that? Those are, I think, two caricatures of Jewish tradition, neither of which is entirely true. And of course, it's complicated by the fact that Jewish tradition is not based exclusively on the Bible. Jewish tradition, as it has been practiced at least since the second century of the Common Era, so since, since about the year 200, but probably before that as well, is a, a form of Judaism known by scholars as Rabbinic Judaism. And it is a, a Judaism that is based on the Bible, but that has uh, transcended beyond it, is an interpretive tradition uh, on the Bible that takes the, the stories and the laws and the values and the traditions of the Bible and makes, reshapes, reforms, uh, sometimes liberalizes and sometimes conservatizes those traditions. I don't know if I, that's a word, conservatizes, but I just made it up, <laughs> if, even if it's not. And so that includes Jewish traditions about warfare. So rabbinic tradition looks at the Bible and concludes that there are really three categories of war discussed in the Bible. And they frame it all under the assumption that the rabbis make that the core value expressed in the Bible is actually in the book of Genesis that says the human being is created in God's image and likeness and therefore is that every human is infinitely valuable and equal. So that human life is uh, indivisible, is equal, is infinitely precious. There's a famous, uh, tractate, a famous passage in the Mishnah, which is one of the core texts of Hermetic Judaism, that says to destroy one life is to destroy an entire world. And to save one life is to save an entire world. And so much of the rabbinic understanding of warfare is under the shadow of that premise, that principle. But war is complicated. Sometimes wars require the taking of life in order to save life. So the rabbis recognize that war is complicated. And they say, they look at the Bible and they say that, that with that basic axiom in mind, there are really kind of three categories of war that are discussed in the Bible. One, they define as milchemet chova, an obligatory war. And they describe the wars of conquest of the land of Israel that begin in the book of Numbers, but continue into the book of Deuteronomy, and then really in earnest in the books of Joshua and Judges, but even somewhat into the books of Samuel and Kings. 
that those are wars that are that are commanded by God. Uh, they are, you know, what uh, what Muslims might call jihad. Right? These are holy wars that are that are required to be fought until the entire land is uh, subdued, conquered, and settled by Israel. There is a lot of permissiveness about what's allowed in that kind of warfare, including, as we'll discuss in, in a few moments, a, a concept called cherem, which means total annihilation. So part of that, part of that milchemet chova is a requirement not only to defeat the enemy, but to utterly wipe out the enemy, leave no trace of the indigenous inhabitants of the land of Israel, what was then the land of Canaan. Rabbinic tradition sees that in the, in the Bible and says that may have been a required war, but that only existed in that one place and time the Bible itself doesn't necessarily purport that that, uh, that it's re reporting history, by the way. It's meaning to communicate some constellation of values in the narratives about that war. But they, the rabbis say, okay, even if that is talking about history, and even if that were a religious value, a milchemet chova, an obligatory war like that, only existed in that time and place. It could never exist ever again. So essentially he said it's an obligatory war that is no longer obligatory. And even more than that, the Torah says you have to, you know, utterly wipe out certain nations. And the rabbis say, yeah, but, you know, uh, since the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, when the Babylonians kind of mixed and mingled all peoples with forced deportations, we no longer know who the Canaanites are anymore. They may be anybody and they be, may be nobody. And so therefore you can't regard any person that you encounter as a Canaanite, any nation that you encounter as a Canaanite, you can't interpret any nation as a Canaanite. So therefore, not only does that kind of war no longer exist, but it's no longer even theoretically possible because we no longer know who those nations are anyway. And then it mentions a second category of war that is offered in, uh, in a few instances in the Bible. And the rabbis call that a milchamet reshut, a war of choice or a permissible war. And these are, generally speaking, wars of aggression. Sometimes they're wars of territorial expansion. Sometimes they're wars of uh, conquest. Maimonides uh, says to enhance the, 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 the greatness and the prestige and the power of a, of a king. Sometimes these are wars for resources. These are wars of choice. The rabbis say that there may be circumstances in which wars of cho choice are, uh, are permitted, but they substantially narrow the scope to only exist at a time when there is a certain kind of government that exists among the Jewish people of a sovereign, a king, with a great Sanhedrin, a specially constituted body of scholars uh, and sages and a high priest and a functioning temple, which means to say a situation that even in the time of the rabbis didn't exist, hasn't existed since, and may never exist again. 
So essentially, effectively, what that means is that for the rabbis, even a war of choice, a mechamet reshut, is effectively not an option on the table for, uh, for Jews. And again, the rabbis are writing this in a time when Jews don't have sovereignty, don't have power. So these are theoretical values, at least, but deriving from them a sense of what the Jewish perspective on warfare is. So, you know, if, uh, if Joe Biden were to ask me, hey, you know, Rabbi Knopf, what, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, launching an invasion of Canada. What does the Torah say about that? Or what, is, what does Jewish tradition say about that? I say, well, you know, that would probably fall into the category of Melchamet Rashut. And unless you have a, uh, a, a, a 70 sages and a high priest, my, my sense is that that probably would not be justified in the Jewish scheme of uh, what is a valid war or not. Now, Joe Biden may never ask me that question, right? But that would be my sense of what Jewish values would go and, uh, and, and say about that issue. But there is one category of war that the rabbis say is always not only permitted, but is required. They call this a milchemet mitzvah, a commanded war. And that's a war of self-defense. Now, this is a complicated area, especially in modern times, when wars of self-defense uh, are often launched preemptively because you sense that an, that, uh, an enemy is uh, making preparations to, uh, to, to, to attack you, and you don't want to give them the opportunity to inflict harm upon you, so you inflict harm upon them first. Is that permitted? It's a complicated area in Jewish law, but the, the essential principle is that if someone is coming to harm you, you are obligated, they essentially forfeit their right to life. Your life is triumph, trumps, your right to life trumps their right to life. And so you have a right, not only a right, but a responsibility to defend yourself and anybody else who they might be attacking. You have not only a right, but a responsibility, someone is coming to kill you to rise up and, and, and strike them even first. And there is an idea uh, called the road death, that if somebody's pursuing someone else in order to kill them, you actually have not only the right, but the responsibility to intervene, to step in and in their defense as well. So in defense of, of others. So this is a category of war that doesn't require a, messi uh, a messianic ideal, isn't situated in the mythic past, is a real live consideration. And for the most part, this is true in modern Israel, where some of these questions are live questions uh, of the complications of the considerations of that kind of war. What counts as a defensive war? And then within that, there's all sorts of questions about uh, rules and regulations about who counts as combatants in even a defensive war. Right? So if, I, if, if a nation is attacking me and I want to defend myself against them, but defending myself against them you know, requires launching, I don't know, drone strikes on missile silos that are uh, hidden uh, uh, within civilian populations, can I strike those missile silos knowing that there is going to be some collateral damage, including the loss of civilian life? It's a complicated question. Right? So those are real live questions and made even more complicated by contemporary warfare, which was in many ways not envisioned in, uh, in, in ancient times. The use of 
automated warfare, the use of aerial warfare, right? The, if you think about, you know, when in rabbinic tradition, the, the most advanced weaponry in war were, were, were catapults and battering rams and, and, you know, fiery bows and arrows and the kinds of things that you see in Game of Thrones, except for dragons. They probably didn't have dragons, I don't think. Maybe they did. Anyway, so that is the murky and challenging area of Jewish law that I'm hoping we'll bring into conversation tonight. I'm really, really grateful that uh, a wonderful member of our congregation, uh, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University, and author of Women as War Criminals, Gender, Agency, and Justice, and Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars. Uh, our friend and member, Jessica Trisco Darden, uh, is here tonight. Uh, Jessica, in addition to that illustrious career, is the mother of uh, Alexander and Oren, who are wonderful students in our religious school. So it's just such a gift uh, to be able to have your family with us and to have you with us tonight to talk about your expertise and your scholarship in the uh, history and contemporary realities of warfare. We're having this conversation, of course, in the shadow of the marker of 100 days since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, something that I know that you've been thinking a lot about and writing a lot about and talking a lot about. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that you can uh, shed some light for us on some of the ambiguities and complexities of war ethics, and then maybe we can have a conversation together. And I think it's so amazing to think that what, what is Shavuot, right? Shavuot is when we received the law. And as Rabbi Knopf so elegantly explained, Jewish tradition has thousands of years of interpretation and debate and thought about that law. But when we turn to our contemporary society, our history of thought and debate and interpretation of the laws of war is is drastically limited uh, in comparison to the Jewish tradition. So if we think about the most applicable international laws of war, this kind of body of jurisprudence that we use to assess and regulate and debate the ethics of modern conflict, at best, we can kind of date the Geneva Conventions back to about 1864. They become codified in a very clear body of law only in 1949, where we have kind of broad ratification of the Geneva Protocols. We, in this same period, uh, have the formation of the United Nations as a, as a body to both convene and govern states. And we have the adoption of the Genocide Convention, the work of Jewish, Polish, American lawyer, Raphael Lemkin, which, which really is a response to World War II and the Holocaust. And so a lot of international law is shaped by the shadow of the Second World War and the Shoah. And it takes decades for that law to evolve any further. So we get kind of trapped in that moment the post-World War II moment. And it's not until 1998 that we see the expansion of international law to the Rome Statute, which updated 
our understandings of what could be considered war crimes. And this eventually generates the International Criminal Court, which is established in 2002. And today we think of the International Criminal Court as one of the kind of highest bodies for assessing the ethics and legality of conflicts. But we do have lots of parallel bodies as well that come into play. So we don't have 40 sages and a Kohen Gadol, but we have the United Nations, which plays a role in authorizing or legitimizing different forms of conflict as well. So the kind of Western tradition as it has evolved also has these categories of conflict, right? So one category is clearly the aggressive or offensive war, much like what Russia has done in Ukraine, a clear act of aggression, unprovoked hostility. And many scholars argue, many international lawyers argue that, that there are no conditions under which aggressive offensive war are permitted, right? It is simply the role of international law to constrain those types of wars. There's also the idea of a defensive war, right? That if someone infringes on your sovereignty, threatens the life of your citizens, right? That you are obligated to respond and indeed you must respond. So in this case, right? we see Ukrainian military action as defensive action against a Russian invader or aggressor. And then we have kind of this ambiguous category of wars, which are internationally sanctioned wars, where whether it is aggressive or defensive depends on one's perspective, right? So we could think of, for instance, the Iraq War which was not authorized by the United Nations, but had a coalition, a so-called coalition of the willing, who were aligned and militarily cooperated to conduct that war. We can also think of NATO-sanctioned wars that occurred under uh, what became known in about 2000 as the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. So similar to what Rabbi just discussed, there was this sense that if states were unable to protect their own citizens from harm, if states were genocidal, if states were engaged in gross human rights abuses, that the obligation to protect those citizens actually fell upon other states. That if a government would not protect its own, that the international community had to rally in response to protect those individuals. And NATO military intervention in Kosovo was justified according to this logic, as was NATO military intervention in Libya to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. So we have kind of these challenging understandings of war that often depend on where one is situated in terms of the conflict. And, and these are some of the ambiguities that emerge from and in some cases are written into our our understanding of the laws of war. But I'm gonna walk through some of these kind of major legal developments, and then I think ask some big, big questions that speak to both the Jewish tradition and kind of the Western legal tradition that has emerged. And so the Geneva Conventions and Protocols really emerged first out of the need to protect medical personnel, 
So those who were tending to wounded soldiers and, and otherwise uh, assisting on the battlefield. And because those individuals were so essential to militaries, right, to protect and rescue their wounded, but were clearly not part of armed combat and were not participating in armed combat, they had a kind of ambiguous status on the battlefield. And the first Geneva Conventions were really established to protect those individuals. But it, it later evolved to include protections for those who were not, were not medical personnel, but were not involved in the fighting or were rendered incapable of fighting. So this included protections for soldiers who were wounded or who had defected, who had laid down their arms, but it also evolved to include protections for civilians, which hadn't previously existed. This idea that a whole nation was not at war, that we could separate between a professional military in one sense and a regular citizenry or populace that was not actively engaged in conflict. The Geneva Conventions also do what we think of now as the major laws of war. They prohibit torture. They prohibit summary execution. They uh, protect prisoners of war from torture and abuse. They ensure that injured soldiers get adequate medical treatment. All of these things that lead us to characterize contemporary warfare as something that is humane and something that is ethical. Even though conditions on the ground argue that war is never humane. And our faith tradition suggests that war is almost never ethical. But we have kind of the trappings of international law that make us think that conflict is something that is acceptable. And this is kind of the state of affairs really until we get uh, the Holocaust. And there is a huge push by Raphael Lemkin almost single-handedly to have what is happening in Europe recognized as genocide. Right. And he coins the definition of genocide in this moment and argues that it's an attempt to eradicate in whole or in part an ethnic, racial, religious or political group. And there's much contemporary debate about that definition, what a whole or a part means, right, whether political groups and religious and ethnic groups are all equal and how we understand and identify them. But it's the first moment in which we have a significant shift and new adoption in international law that goes from kind of protecting individuals and thinking about how we think about militaries and who should be protected to focusing specifically on crimes or violations, right? And, and all of the kind of international legal thinking shifts as a result. So what we then get is an expansion of this crime-based focus with the Rome Statute that creates the International Criminal Court. And this adopts Lemkin's definition of genocide, but also adds the category of what are known as crimes against humanity, which in many ways is a much more amorphous and ambiguous concept than genocide. 
crimes against humanity are essentially atrocities of a variety of sorts that I, you know, won't won't list out for for um, a variety of reasons, but but we kind of get this like grab bag catch all notion of crimes against humanity that includes acts that look very much like genocide, uh, but acts that are much much more ambiguous, not only in terms of their violence, but in terms of who is being targeted by that violence. Um, but there all are also some significant innovations. So the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court explicitly include sexual violence, something that was only considered um, in reference to genocide in its relation to attempts to control the birth uh, of, a, of a group, birth rate of a group. The Rome Statute is also focused on internal wars. Uh, and so very much at this time, we're seeing a shift from kind of interstate World War II type conflicts to internally driven civil wars happening not only in post-Soviet states, but former Yugoslavia, but also throughout much of the sub-Saharan African continent uh, and elsewhere in the world as well. And because of this focus on internal conflict, we get the International Criminal Court as a state as a court of last resort. And this goes back to the focus of the responsibility to protect doctrine, which is occurring at this same moment in time, which is what do you do when a state doesn't protect its own citizens? When a state won't prosecute war crimes, when a state won't hold its military leadership accountable, or when the state itself is involved in prosecuting those crimes, right, in committing those crimes. And so the International Criminal Court is established as a legal forum for war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, accusations, cases to be heard where local courts won't hear them or can't hear them, where the courts don't have the capacity or the ability to investigate. And so this is kind of relevant in terms of understanding what's going on in Ukraine and war crimes prosecutions and these discussions about will Vladimir Putin ever be brought before the International Criminal Court, is that one very interesting development is that Ukraine is actually right now pursuing war crimes cases against captured Russian soldiers. And in one case, they've already had a verdict where a 21-year-old uh, Russian soldier was convicted of a summary execution. And so because Ukraine has the legal capacity to investigate and prosecute these cases, um, we are kind of seeing war crimes justice happening um, very rapidly and while conflict is ongoing, which is the polar opposite of what happened with the Holocaust, where in some cases it took a decade, in some cases it took many, many decades, uh, and Germany is still prosecuting individuals uh, who were involved in the Holocaust today. Right there, there is a 96 year old, she, maybe she's 97 year old being prosecuted today for actions that she committed when she was 18 years old. Right. And so we have to think, you know, we always talk about like the long arc of justice, but there's also the question of um, 
the the rapidity of justice and what that can achieve and so there's really interesting tension between how long it has taken to establish these different categories of war crimes and the ways in which those charges are now being brought um, and cases are being resolved but i think what this really raises is a couple important questions for us to discuss and and one is who has the authority to sanction war right in the jewish tradition it's god maybe it's the sanhedrin sometimes under some conditions right in the contemporary international context it's the united nations right they can call a vote um defensive wars are clearly broadly accepted as justified right but to this question of the gray zone what what do you do with kind of offensive defensive wars right proactive wars of defense um and how are these decisions kind of arbitrated because we know the united nations is an inherently political body with lots of factions but i also think it raises the question of you know who then enforces the law right if a conflict is deemed unjust or illegal who or what can can bring a consequence to that right the united nations has no army it has no police the international criminal court um, has no jurisdiction unless a state gives it jurisdiction so for instance Ukraine is not uh, a full party to the International Criminal Court, but has allowed investigations to occur on its territory. And that is the um, authorization under which the ICC is currently operating in Ukraine. But many states have withdrawn or, withdrawn or threatened to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. The United States is not a party to it. So there's, I think, there's this tension between the fact that laws exist and laws exist on the books and they're widely adopted but there's no power and no authority to enforce that law in many instances and that's where we get get these challenges also relating to who's responsible for conduct who determines whether a territory has sovereignty the answers to those sorts of questions are much clearer in the Jewish tradition than they are in contemporary legal domain. Yeah, they, they absolutely are. Uh, it's, it, you, you raise a really important point. You know, I, I sometimes ask my 10th grade students to prove why something like the Holocaust is a crime without eventually coming back to the notion that God says that it's a crime. And that to me is, it's not necessarily evidence for the existence of God, but is a, for me, a compelling rationale for having faith in God, that, that, uh, that a belief in God is a, a, a recourse to an, uh, an ultimate morality, 
a sense that there are distinctions between right and wrong. You can't prove them in nature. You can't necessarily prove them in history, right? And so I was thinking as you were, as you were talking, well, Vladimir Putin argues that the war against Ukraine is in some ways defensive, right? And that therefore the widespread targeting of civilians, uh, or at least the reported widespread targeting of civilians, the uh, closing of escape routes for civilians uh, are, are justified or justifiable because it is in the service of an ideal that is in the best interest of the Russian people, perhaps the best welfare of the Russian people. Um, and again, you know, without being able to say, okay, in, uh, in recourse to my own tradition, my, under my own understanding of what's just, what's right, what's wrong, uh, I, I might have to say, well, who's to say whether he's right or whether he's wrong? That's certainly something that uh, Vladimir Putin relies on. Uh, there, there's a, um, this is the, this quote is taken from something, and I can't remember now what it is, but a book about modern Russia called, oh, I think it was actually a quote from Hannah Arendt, uh, or a version of something Hannah Arendt said, uh, that um, uh, the, the book about modern Russia is, uh, nothing is real and everything is possible, right? And so that idea that if you can't necessarily discern what's true and what's false, what's fact and what's fiction, then anything is justifiable. So, so to me, that is a compelling rationale for a, a recourse to a religious system that lays out what's right and what's wrong. The problem, of course, as you mentioned, is that, you know, to my chagrin, not everybody is Jewish. And even, and even, uh, and even Jews disagree about, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what the nature of Jewish law is, right? I mean, I just mentioned at the beginning, you know, so the, in principle, rabbinic tradition says that a defensive war is justified. Um, but what, what exactly counts as defensive war? What, violence against civilians is potentially justified even in the context of that defensive war that's a matter of debate within jewish tradition right people's lives are at stake there yeah i'm glad you brought it back to shavuot and the giving of the torah right the you know we'll read tomorrow morning the ten commandments at the heart of the ten commandments the sixth commandment is lo tirzach so it's up there somewhere yeah there it is uh the the top of the the left-hand column, uh, thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill would be much more clear-cut. No taking of human life is ever justified. But thou shalt not murder doesn't say that. It's no unsanctioned take, taking of human life. Okay, so there are some times where taking human life is, is sanctioned. And that's where it does. It gets really, it gets really complicated. I, I'm not sure that rabbinic tradition or Jewish tradition would say that a that that a political democratic international body is the best arbiter for what's right and just, what's uh, what, what's uh, what's good and bad. Uh, 
Lord knows that there are problems in, 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 in both in principle and in practice with the with policy positions that are that are often laid out by the United Nations. Um, and so I, I think Jewish tradition would therefore say, you know, the, the reason we have a Sanhedrin is that uh, it it is a body of sages steeped in this particular wisdom tradition that has its own particular understanding of morality uh, and that adjudicates right and wrong we can't rely on any other system there is of course i, I think a compelling jewish argument to be made for a, a democratic approach that there's truth that can be found in consensus thinking but i don't know history hasn't always borne that out i'm wondering what you think about this well, I think Jewish tradition has an amazing foundation for much of contemporary international humanitarian law. So you mentioned a humanitarian corridor, right? A, a safe exit zone where civilians can leave a space. Um, and there's been much discussion and negotiation about that between Russia and Ukraine, right? Are they going to allow a humanitarian corridor? Oh, well, now it's disrupted. 20 trucks were heading there. And, and there's been a lot of chaos and a lot of manipulation and power games regarding the idea of a humanitarian corridor. But we know, I know, thanks to Rabbi Knopf, that in the Jewish faith tradition, right, we had Maimonides writing about the importance of a humanitarian corridor and that when uh, you lay siege to a city, you must only um, confront it from three sides and leave the fourth open so that people can flee, right? So this is kind of a deeply rooted concept in the idea that you must allow for the protection and continuance of all life and all of those who are not aggressive toward you, right? If folks want to stay and defend their city, that's fine, but you must give them the opportunity to leave. And if you take that notion, it really constrains a lot of the forms of warfare that one can conduct. And there's also some really interesting thinking about kind of forced displacement um, and famine and this idea that uh, you might not want your enemies living amongst you, um, but at the same time, you don't want to kind of lay the land barren and cut down all of the fruit bearing trees. And so there's this really interesting tension between kind of making allowances for survival, both of yourself and of those whom you consider your enemies, but also this need to really like get your enemies out, right? Achieve your military objectives. And I think that this tension between a, a kind of respectful approach and really aggressive warfare is, kind of, is what remains unresolved in, in contemporary warfare as well, right? How do you defeat your opponent, um, but ensure the least loss of life? And those calculations have been really different historically. Yeah, I mean, you raised some really important points there. I, I often take that Jewish tradition of prohibiting the, the, the destruction of trees on the battlefield as a pretty extreme example of 
of a value against harming non-combatants, right? So trees are the ultimate example of non-combatants because they're not sentient. <laughs> they have, they literally have no arms, right? So, uh, well, they have branches, but anyway, in The Wizard of Oz, they had arms and they like threw apples at you. But other than that, they don't have arms. So, uh, so right, Deuteronomy says, when you, when you, you know, take uh, the battlefield against your enemy, do not cut down trees. Uh, because they aren't, it literally says that, right? They, they, is, a, is, is a tree of the field a human being that, you know, that, it, that would stand against you in war? And so beyond that, the Jewish tradition, I think, has a pretty, uh, pretty substantial, places a pretty substantial value on avoiding harming non-combatants or civilians and I, and I re and I recognize that and I want to hear from you a little bit about like is there a distinction between those two things non-combatants and and civilians sometimes it's not always so clear uh, but you mentioned a siege and a siege is a really great example right so a siege uh, is is theoretically a form of warfare uh, especially if you don't leave a humanitarian corridor like Maimonides or Nachmanides talks about I think that there's a disagreement by between them by the way about like the size of the corridor that you have to leave one of them says that you have to leave a whole side of the city open for people who want to leave and one says you just have to leave a a a, a, a road or, or something um but both essentially say right, you have to give the opportunity for those who don't want to participate in the hostilities at all to be able to leave so that therefore those who are choosing to stay in the city you can consider yeah, there are various reasons why a person might want to choose to stay in the city besides being a combatant or participant in the hostilities but you say okay well, they made a choice to be there knowing full well what was going to happen and so therefore they have to live with the consequences of it um but the but the tradition places such a substantial value on not harming non-combatants that it wants to avoid it but but if you uh besiege a city it's a form of warfare that unless you leave in a humanitarian corridor it's in, invariably going to harm non-combatants i did want to bring up uh and and just hear you reflect on when i was thinking about that it made me think about the american response to the war in ukraine which has been and, and another you know western countries response to your war in ukraine which is sort of to wage economic war against russia which strikes me as a form of siege it, because the 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 mentality of a siege is we're going to not engage actively in hostilities there's a moral argument to be made there that it's better than open warfare against the city because you theoretically have the possibility of avoiding casualties the sooner the other side relents and um and forfeits then you know the the less people get hurt right and the mentality of the economic warfare that the west is waging against russia is well you know the all of it'll hurt the russian people enough that they will demand vladimir putin change courts um so you know, in a besieged city, right, the, the famine will get so severe that the people will say, you know, to their to their leaders, their generals, whatever, just surrender already because we are dying here, right? So I don't know, is that preferable to the West engaging in active warfare against Russia to try to prevent uh, the you know brutality that's happening in in Ukraine? I mean, these are really complicated questions. <laughs> 
it's certainly cheaper. So which is cheaper to to wage economic warfare. So if we think about it, we did it for decades uh, against Iraq, against Iran. Um, we eventually invaded Iraq, and that was a very, very costly operation and one that continues to cost the United States uh, and the people of Iraq today. But the question is, does this type of economic warfare achieve anything, right? It's, it's kind of predicated on this idea that we're going to inspire some sort of popular uprising or popular revolution that's going to oust um, the sitting president of any of these countries, right, or the sitting Ayatollah in the case of um, Iran also, and that somehow if you make people suffer, they will get upset enough with their leadership to do something about it. And it's kind of based on the idea that people won't realize that we are the thing making them suffer. And so I find just like the, the logic of this deeply flawed, because if you know your country is under heavy, heavy sanctions from the United States and other European countries, right? If you know that you can't get proper medical care because you can't get those drugs or medical equipment from Europe, are you really going to blame your political leadership for that? I, I don't know, but I do know that you know, it's not just that we're waging economic warfare against Russia. We're sending tens of, of billions of dollars in weapons to Ukraine. And so even if Americans aren't actively involved in that conflict, we're contributing to the violence that is taking place, right? And so we have to think about with this idea that every life is valuable, what role that plays. So if our contributions are bringing a more rapid close to the conflict, right, then, then they're aligned with that vision. If they're dragging the conflict out or if they're setting the stage for future violence in the country, in particular through this massive influx of, of small arms and light artillery, then you know i think that we need a robust public debate about what this is achieving and what's been really fascinating to watch is that um the russian invasion of ukraine has been this like politically unifying moment where there's actually been very little debate and very little discussion about what the end goals are and how much the united states is willing to get involved and commit both politically in terms of resources. Um, and, and I don't think that's healthy for our democracy. I don't think it's healthy for the prosecution of armed conflict in general. I think there needs to be kind of more discussion of it. Um, but I also understand that, you know, individuals have, have grown up with this idea that the Soviet Union was a threat and that Russia was a threat and that it was a pure competitor. And also, you know, folks in the Jewish community have very, very strong ties to Ukraine. And so I understand, you know, where the impetus for support is coming from. But I think that we need to do a little bit more thinking about kind of the long term consequences of our enthusiasm for supporting Ukraine. 
Yeah, so, you know, when you were speaking there, I, I couldn't help but thinking about the possibility, and obviously, you know, all analogies are imperfect, and the situation is, is different and differently complex than the one that I'm about to bring up. But, you know, in the 1980s, the Americans essentially fought a proxy war against Russia in Afghanistan. Uh, in a similar kind of way, right? We armed uh, we armed Afghans to fight against the Russians in Afghanistan. Uh, so, uh, and the results of that turned out to be not great for the United States either. So, I'm, I what, what, when you were talking there, it raised for the first time for me a, a concern about the unintended consequences of um, you know of, of engaging in warfare without engaging in warfare, which may not necessarily be better than the consequences of engaging in warfare itself. So that's one thing. But the other is the, the broader question is the, you know, the extent of American responsibility. Now let's say it is a moral imperative for the United States as a nation with the capacity to intervene in a, in, in a, uh, in, in a war like the one going on in Ukraine of an, you know, unprovoked and unjustified, uh, a, a assault on, uh, on an independent nation, uh, that seems to be, uh, if not targeting civilians, um, fairly indiscriminately harming, harming civilians. You know, if we have an obligation, a moral imperative to intervene in that kind of conflict, uh, first of all, wouldn't the moral imperative be to intervene in such a way as to stop the hostilities as quickly as possible? And is that what we're doing? But, it, you know, we also have the question of, you know, why only there, right? So, you know, and, and I know you study genocides uh and you know the um you and i had talked about this about whether this should be called a genocide the american government just called it a genocide the the person the violence against the rohingya uh in in myanmar uh but uh or burma and uh um also the you know uh, violence against the uh, uyghur muslims in china engaging in in you know uh frontal warfare with China is a complicated proposition, I, I grant, right? But, but do we not have a similar obligation in defense of those populations? You, you mentioned in you know, uh, uh, international law, there are provisions for countries to aid in the defense of uh, nations that are you know, being persecuted by their own governments, that violence against, um, uh, you know, aggression against uh, in, independent nations. Um, uh, militaries that are not either being held accountable or the those in power are perpetrating atrocities themselves, right? And other countries might have the responsibility to intervene. So, you know, is there a mandate for, I don't know, is it the United States? Is it some international body to, to intervene in those kind of conflicts? Like, should there be a world police that, uh, that, that stops that? And, it, and and if so, you know, who should be that police and who polices that police? 
And that kind of brings us back to this moment in, in kind of international law in the early 2000s where this doctrine of the responsibility to protect was being developed. And, and who were the countries spearheading that, right? Canada, Sweden, Norway, right? Your, your friendly, peaceable Western nations who were not going to be genocidal, who were not going to perpetrate crimes against humanity, right? Who felt that uh, this kind of conduct was morally and ethically and legally unacceptable. But at the same time, you had a, a whole other group of states aligned against this uh, emerging legal doctrine, right? You had Russia, you had China, you had a whole host of states in the global south who said, you have no right lovely western peaceable nordic and canadian nations to to interfere in our personal affairs right in how we govern our country and what we do um and so a lot of the debate for instance over the internment of the uyghurs in china and 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 what are clearly unjust actions being perpetrated against individuals call on this international conflict between states that are perfectly willing to create doctrines that violate the sovereignty of other states because they know that they're never going to be invaded for committing those acts and states that for whatever reason and we can opine about what those would be don't want to create a body of international law that justifies intervention military or otherwise on how they conduct business within their state and the policies that they adopt and so this goes back to kind of the un that and other um international bodies where where you have these kind of competing perspectives there's no single authority to make that decision one way or the other Right. So NATO can say that under the responsibility to protect doctrine, we're launching this military effort. And the countries, you know, neighboring the intervened upon country can say this is this is an illegal war. Right. And there's no one back to, you know, King Solomon, no one to decide who, who is right and who is wrong. And I think in terms of kind of whether intervention can be compelled it can certainly be requested right and president Zelensky has gone to like every possible parliament and news organization pleading for help um and that really is the only basis in international law where foreign military intervention is completely legal right so um Syria invited Russian forces in right, to help defend the Assad regime. Those were the only permitted international forces operating in Syria. Under international law, all of those other forces uh, shouldn't have been intervening there, right? So- That was, that was legal under international law. Correct, because the Syrian government allowed that military to operate on its territory. Um, and so I think in the case of Ukraine, it certainly would be legal. I think the president it would, be happy to have, you know, additional military support, but um, the folks in Washington, you know, who think about these things very differently, um, there are lots of complicated calculations that I'm not even going to pretend I understand or, or know about. 
Um, but I also think we have kind of the long shadow of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war that complicate things, right? Those were, you broke it, you bought it wars. We went in, we invaded, we had decades of reconstruction. And ultimately when we pulled out things, things uh, fell apart. And so I don't know if that's affecting individuals' calculations in terms of Ukraine, but I do think that one thing that we need to be talking more about is not how do we arm Ukraine, how many Javelin missiles can we send them, but like, what are we gonna do to help Ukraine rebuild? And so going back to our trees, there are amazing satellite images that you can see of how the war has affected the environment in Ukraine. Uh, where you can see where tree canopies have been destroyed and and just the sheer like environmental impact on top of all of the other impacts infrastructure and such um there are amazing documentaries you can find online about the um, impact of the war in syria and the damage to oil refineries and other things that have polluted large amounts of water and rendered areas totally uninhabitable uh, because of that environmental destruction. And so I think we always have to kind of think holistically about, about these consequences. And, but that's very difficult to do in the heat of the moment. It really is. I mean, uh, you know, and it also presents the challenge of how do you focus on the task of you have a long-term task of helping Ukraine rebuild with, if, if Ukraine doesn't exist anymore, right? And you know, then there's the additional piece, right? Which is, uh, you know, if we want to help Ukraine rebuild, uh, you know, we're, we're still uh, awaiting the fulfillment of the promise to build this country back better than it was before the pandemic, right? So th there's that challenge too. You, you, you mentioned it before, that the cost of prosecuting uh, wars is, is extraordinary. Uh, and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Afghanistan, the war on terror, you know, overall, include, especially including the Iraq war, if you included in that, right? It was, you know, over a trillion dollars spent in in that war right and and you know there are debates you know that we can't find you know a billion dollars here a billion dollars there for student loan forgiveness or whatever it is right but we can find a trillion dollars to fight a war against iraq but the you know the complicate the what, what makes it complicated and i remember this and you know in, in, i was a college student in 2003 and you know these these were debates raging on campus and you know uh some of us who were arguing uh, against the war would frequently come up against the criticism of, but Saddam Hussein is a brutal tyrant who gasses his own people. Are you just going to allow that? Um, and it's a hard thing to argue against uh, because no, I don't, you know, it's not like I think it's a good thing that Saddam Hussein is a brutal tyrant who gasses his own people, uh, but it, but, but uh, what's the extent of America's responsibility in, uh, in, in affecting the outcome in, uh, in in a place like Iraq, it's it's really it's really challenging. Well, and I think the other question too is, you know, what other parties are responsible for rebuilding Ukraine? Right? Are are we in a situation where we should be thinking about how to get Russia to pay reparations? Right? Because we can seize as many yachts as we want to seize, and it's not going to rebuild 
Ukraine. Um, and so I think that there needs to be a really creative thinking about this, but also, you know, we're, we're going to be involved in some way or the other in what is happening in Ukraine for decades to come. Um, and so I think that these are really important discussions to be having. I think that we need to be more informed about what we're supporting. So in some of my um, recent writing, I actually broke down uh, the aid to Ukraine, like looked through the government documents and peeled it all out. And some of what we're considering Ukraine aid is reimbursing the Department of Defense for arms that's already sent to Ukraine. Um, or, you know, paying for the hotel rooms for State Department officials who had to evacuate Kiev, but now they're back in Kiev. And um, and so I think we think a lot of that money is like going to Ukraine to help people and to help their survival. And some of it certainly is. And some of it um, is kind of getting sucked back up by U.S. bureaucracy. And so uh, I think that that the longer this goes on and the more we know and the more we understand about the dynamics, the more informed we're going to be as a public to debate these issues, form opinions, um, and engage with our, our representatives and our policymakers about you know, what, what we think, informed by our faith tradition, is the appropriate road forward. Well, I think that that's a really great place to uh, just pause for a minute to see if any anyone uh, has a question that they want to ask. Uh, Jessica, she's the expert up here, uh, not me, but I'm happy to also uh, jump in if there if there's something that I can weigh in on too. Uh, and of course, uh, those who are joining us virtually, you're you're welcome to ask as well. If we can get their sound in, that's great. If not, you could just uh, type your question in the chat, and maybe Damien can uh, read it for us in the sanctuary. Any questions? Um, so yeah. I, I, I heard that. actually. There, there's a Russia expert in the room that might be better positioned to answer that question than I am. If you wanna. <laughs> Would you like to take it? <laughs> um, well, I think the question is, right? when you're when you're formulating that sort of question right what i would assume is that you have this kind of world war ii you know peaceful anschluss and then and then the ball keeps rolling and keeps rolling right and so there are a couple scenarios that we could at least think about one is that like Putin wants part of Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine, and there is some sort of claim that he at least believes or is using rhetorically that, you know, that was historically Russian territory and it's populated by Russian speakers and, and, and all of that. Okay. If that narrative is true, and I'm certainly not saying it is, then, then we would assume that he has limited ambitions and, and we wouldn't have this kind of perpetual war moving forward. I think a lot of people will say that's false because, you know, Russia annexed Crimea and has been in Eastern Ukraine uh, since 2015 and, and we still had this invasion, right? Okay, so then scenario two is that um, we have some Russia, Belarus, Ukraine reunification. Um, okay, 
that would still be bad, right? That would still be bad. But I have a hard time seeing how this would be kind of like perpetual war or World War II that would drag in all of Europe and all of NATO. We also are learning, um, and some have known for quite some time, that NATO is like highly divided. Uh, Turkey's throwing a wrench in the mix. Hungary's throwing a wrench in the mix. Um, and so it's not totally clear that there could be a unified effort here that would be sustained over the long term. But back to the question of, you know, can anyone stop Putin? The question is, you know, well, stop him from what? Right? And in this instance, it's, you know, stop him from destroying Ukraine. And I think that that's a concrete answer that can have a concrete quest, you know, concrete question that can have a concrete answer. And I don't think, you know, financial sanctions and light arms are going to do it. But I also think that the American public is um, not ready to consider or bear the burden of what would perhaps be required. Um, and I'm not sure European publics are either, but I haven't looked at that, that data. Right. Well, so that, I think that, that, you know, that brings up the question of, you know, what, what measures would be justifiable to accomplish that end, right? Can Putin be stopped? Probably, right? <laughs> I can think of a handful of ways. They're not pretty, but I could think of them. Uh, and so the question is, you know, are those are those in any way justifiable? It, it, would they be tolerated by the American or European uh, publics? Um, and you know, what might the consequences of those actions be, whether you know intended or unintended? Uh, those are those are the, the more difficult questions. Like, can it happen? Yeah. Uh, is it the best approach to dealing with the conflict, you know, the situation in our hands? Who knows? Um, you know, I, I think about the terms of, you know, whether, whether, it's, whether it's right or wrong, right? Is it, is it right to, you know, knowing what it would require to stop Putin uh, in like an immediate way, um, is it right to do? I don't have a good answer to that question, but I think that like that's that to me is the question, right? Go ahead. Well, I think we don't necessarily have a great understanding of what the costs have been thus far, both on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. We know pretty well what our costs have been. But a lot of the work of, you know, assessing civilian casualties, assessing economic impact for Russia, assessing economic impact for Ukraine, all of that process is ongoing. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that most experts looking at this conflict either thought it would have ended, you know, very, very rapidly, like in the first two weeks, but now that that hasn't happened, that it's going to be ongoing for quite some time, right? And so it's a different scenario too, where it's, can Russia exhaust itself, right? Is it not necessary that someone, you know, stop Putin because the system can't sustain it? And I think we are seeing a little bit of that, for instance, in these war crime trials of very, very young conscripts who are 
not really understanding why they're there, not knowing what they're supposed to do, who haven't been trained, who haven't engaged, who probably definitely don't want to be there. Um, and so, you know, I do think that that a lot of um, the older generation of Soviets also fought in Afghanistan and, and you know, the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan for a decade and it didn't go well. And, and that generation remembers too. Um, and so hopefully I would think that as this conflict draws on, a lot more of that cultural tension will come up, um, perhaps compounded by economic warfare to, to kind of turn sentiment. Yeah, I mean, and you bring up a really uh, important point there. So first of all, I wanna uh, commend uh, your op-ed in the Washington Post to folks who haven't maybe haven't read it yet about uh, calculating civilian casualties in, in Ukraine um, and the the challenge of doing that uh, it was really illuminating for me and because you raise in there the question of okay what counts as a civilian what counts as a non-combatant right does the you mentioned like an 87 year old grandmother who you know was was uh, given a rifle and and you know trained in self-defense is she a non-combatant the person who's providing you know shelter and supplies to uh to ukrainian uh, soldiers right the uh, i saw an interview of a woman uh who you know is like stockpiling molotov cocktails you know like a 70 year old woman who's doing that right are these non-combatants so it's a really uh challenging question I and mean, we have this all the time in the israeli-palestinian conflict of uh of uh, uh, you know munitions uh factories missile silos uh um that are situated in civilian areas that are that you know that that are in schools and hospitals and things like that right so you know can those can can those areas really be considered civilian areas this is a really challenging question but the other thing that you brought up in there is you know the 20 year old 21 year old conscript uh from russia they're a combatant obviously um but do they have as much moral culpability as I don't know, a, a, a volunteer in the army or a, an officer or something like that. I mean, you had this in the, you know, the, 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 um, the Nuremberg trials where soldiers were on trial saying, you know, I was just following orders and I really didn't have a choice in the matter. I was, you know, conscripted to the army and, uh, and these, this is what I was told to do. Um, is that a morally defensible position? Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the history of legal accountability for the Holocaust that initially that argument was not accepted. If you look in the immediate period post-war from basically 45 to 48, that argument didn't, didn't float its boat, right? Um, nurses were being convicted and hanged, uh, very young um, camp guards, you know, all who were saying, you know, I was just doing what I was told to do. But then we get a legal shift and it actually starts in West German courts and it gets codified in law in about 68, where um, those being prosecuted for murder as it relates to Nazi era crimes, there has to be a demonstration of, of malintent, right? They have to have thought and known they were doing something bad and that's where the i was just following orders or no but i really really liked what hitler was doing and i thought i was helping him by doing this thing 
that if they felt like they were contributing or they felt like they were just fulfilling their role, then West German courts and, and eventually um, the broader system uh, basically absolved them of complicity and said, okay, well, you know, you thought you thought you were doing the right thing. You were just a nurse and the doctor was telling you what to do. And, and you know, he was the role model. The commander was in charge. And so we in the United States have thought about command responsibility a little bit differently um, as it relates to uh, court martials for human rights abuses conducted in Iraq. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how Ukraine's courts deal with this issue, right? Because those on the outside are arguing that, you know, Vladimir Putin, he's the president, he's in control, he is ultimately responsible and accountable. But at the end, it's very low level uh, soldiers who are there on the ground and, and who are being prosecuted. And so it's, it's difficult to see how accountability will move all the way up the ladder. Um, but at the same time, it's not clear that, um, particularly in, in one of the cases where the individual was found guilty, there was clearly like immediate external pressure on him. Um, and so if they're then able to get those higher ups, then, then that will be important. Um, but it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag historically and internationally about how command responsibility is, is dealt with in terms of human rights abuses. Other questions? Um, yes, I have one. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Do, do I have to talk to the computer or the TV? What, what's the deal here? I, I just did. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So for those of you who didn't hear it, the, the question was, you know, with, uh, contemporary international law has a very short pedigree, um, given the, the arc of humanity, although I did acknowledge Jewish thought has a has significantly longer uh, history of that, and, and who's really involved in kind of conceptualizing and pushing international law forward. And I think that's a really excellent question. I think that Scholars of international law, while primarily lawyers, which I am not, are not exclusively lawyers. Um, and there are a lot of sociologists and ethicists and political scientists thinking about these issues, but also those who work in humanitarian practice. So you think about, for instance, the leadership of the International Red Cross or other major humanitarian organizations who are living the consequences of international humanitarian law on a daily basis, um, whose operations are, are being restricted. Um, and one area where uh, 
you know, over the past 20 years has really been a focus of a lot of kind of ironing out the kinks is the relationship between international humanitarian law and counterterrorism law, right? So for instance, under the USA Patriot Act, you can be charged with aiding and abetting terrorism for the provision of any financial or material support to a member of a designated terrorist group or a designated terrorist individual. Okay, well, in some contexts, this means um, giving someone a bottle of water or giving a female member of Boko Haram uh, baby formula or diapers, right? And so I think that international uh, humanitarian organizations have, have really devoted their time and effort to sorting out um, these legal ambiguities. In terms of conceptualizing, you know, what the next hundred years of uh, international humanitarian law looks like, I think it is very divided, as I alluded to a bit earlier, not only between those who argue for state sovereignty and the um, involubility of that, but also those um, who, who see the current international legal architecture as something imposed by the North or the West on, on developing or global South nations. And so this really comes out in the International Criminal Court, where um, the International Criminal Court has only investigated heads of state um, from the global South, um, primarily from Sub-Saharan Africa, all of its indictments are against, uh, for the most part, African heads of state. Uh, they've only indicted one female who was the uh, wife of the head of state of Cote d'Ivoire. And so a lot of folks look at that sort of institution and say, well, this is injustice, right? And so I think what the next hundred years, which is a long time in, in, in international law, is, is going to be trying to make international law seem more equitable and and ensuring that accountability is more um, evenly distributed and so in some sense you know the the icc work in ukraine is really important for kind of distributing that sense of justice um, but it goes back to this this idea that international humanitarian law was largely constructed by nations that didn't feel like it would ever be applied to them. And in the instances when it did, um, countries like the United States balked. And even though we, you know, initially um, signed the Rome Statute, we never ratified it. We're not parties to the International Criminal Court, right? Um, and we refused to issue visas to members of the International Criminal Court who sought to investigate war crimes in Afghanistan. And so that kind of north-south, who's held accountable and who's not divide, I think is going to be the major issue moving it forward as a, as a discipline and area of study. But that's an excellent question, and you should absolutely go become a lawyer. Matt? Uh, thank you so much. I've learned so much from this conversation and, and from you uh, over the past uh, few weeks. I'm, I'm uh, excited to continue learning. Before we uh, conclude the program tonight, um, 
and first of all, everybody is uh, welcome to, to join outside for dessert uh, afterwards um, and also to join us back here for services tomorrow morning at uh, 10 a.m. Uh, and uh, I, I, um, I'm going to thank you in, in a moment formally, but maybe could you give us um, uh, both something to further our learning and something maybe to take action? Well, that's so interesting. I'm not a take action sort of person, so that, that one's tough. I'll leave that for the end. Okay. To further your learning, right? In addition I, to your books. Yeah, yeah. I will say though, one of my one of my books is available on audiobook at your local public library, so that is the easiest way to consume <laughs> to one? consume uh, aiding and abetting. So okay. it's on on U.S. foreign assistance and human rights violations. Um, I would go look up or ask right your member of Congress for their policy on Ukraine, like where they stand, because the likelihood is that they voted in support of everything. But it might be worthwhile to know why, right? And that answer might be more interesting than simply knowing how, how they voted, right? Um, because there's overwhelming support across this country for assistance, military, financial, otherwise, for Ukraine. What is less clear is why different individuals feel that that support is important and warranted. And so even in, we live in Ashland, pretty small town there is tons of support it's amazing you drive around and there are flags everywhere and people have painted their windows and it's wonderful and i just want to know why they, they did that right because that's part of the curiosity of of being a scholar as well um yeah and, and i think it's it's really important to to be engaged on these issues because um our grandkids' kids are, are going to be paying for these conflicts, and so we better know why, why we're fighting them. Wow, that's a powerful and, and haunting idea to leave with, but it's uh, relevant for Shavuot because uh, when we received the Torah, the, uh, according to the Torah, um, it was a covenant made not only with the generation that received it, but with uh, every subsequent generation uh, beyond it into the indefinite future. Um, and so the decisions that we make today uh, invariably have consequences for our children, our children's children, their children's children, and, and on and on. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for, for allowing me this honor. Thank you. And thank you all. And uh, that concludes our program for this evening. Again, uh, you're welcome to join for dessert uh, outside. And uh, services tomorrow morning are at 10 a.m. Hugs This has been the TBE Richmond Podcast. Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. 
Until next time, shalom y'all.